Welcome to Growth Capital, the podcast from the Quoted Companies Alliance. Our organization champions public companies. Some of them are small, some of them are mid-sized. They could be worth a handful of millions or hundreds of millions of pounds. Our aim is to make life better for our members on the stock market. Less cost to complexity, more buyers and sellers, a better story overall so they can focus on growth, creating jobs and spreading wealth. I'm James Ashton, the QCA's Chief Executive. I'm delighted that this series of conversations is being sponsored by Mazar, the audit, tax and advisory firm helping listed businesses grow with purpose. Today's conversation is a special one for QCA. We mark the launch of the new version of the QCA Corporate Governance Code by talking to several of the experts who developed it with us over the course of this year. The code is 10 years old. It's a set of flexible principles designed to help growing companies run better. And it's used by almost 900 companies whose shares are traded on AIM, the main market, and the Aquis Stock Exchange. So what's changed and what stayed the same? How can good governance aid growth? Joining us are Will Pomeroy. He's head of impact engagement for equities at the investment manager Federated Hermes. Laura Nuttall, director and head of governance, compliance and company secretarial at One Advisory, a firm that supports a range of publicly traded companies. I'll pop up later, but first of all, I hand over now to the QCA's head of policy, Jack Marshall, to set the scene. So just for the benefits for those who are not necessarily fully acquainted with the codes, QCA code is a practical outcome oriented and principles-based approach to governance that is tailored for small and mid-sized companies. It's a valuable reference point for growing companies wishing to follow a good governance practice. It's typically used by those on public markets, but it is also applicable to private companies and especially those potentially seeking a listing in the future. And through its principles-based approach, it helps to facilitate and enable companies rather than prescribing them and requiring them to adhere to set requirements. So the history of the QCA and corporate governance dates back almost to our inception. And we first issued guidance on corporate governance in 1993. We then issued three publications between 1999 and 2004, where we provided guidance on the combined code with uh, a specific focus on how smaller companies, smaller quoted companies should apply it. 2005 saw the establishment of the corporate governance guidelines for AIM companies, which we updated twice, once in 2007 and once in 2010. The QCA code as it's known today was formally established in 2013 uh, with the aim of providing more flexible alternative uh, for smaller companies for the UK corporate governance code, uh, which is called up by the FRC. So five years after the code was first published was the, in 2018 was the last time the code underwent a revision and that coincided with the change to AIM Rule 26 and the requirement for all AIM companies to disclose on their website, the details of the corporate governance code they apply. So that brings us to this year, 2023, which marks the latest round of updates. And really where we have arrived today with the new code, um, is a result of many years, um, of building it up and, uh, evolving it into what it is now. And just before um, I go on to talk about uh, why we have updated the code this time around, um, it's important just to mention how the adoption um, of the code has changed over time. So we did some research earlier this year and found that before 2018, there are approximately 400 of the 950 companies on AIM that were applying the code. We repeated this exercise earlier this year to mark the 10th anniversary of the code. 
and find, found that adoption was at record levels with 93% uh, of companies on aim applying the code. We also looked at other markets for the first time and found that over three quarters of at-risk companies uh, and over a quarter of standard list companies uh, were applying the code. So that means that just shy of 900 public companies um, are currently applying the code. Um, of course, we're, we're, we're thrilled that so many companies are utilizing the code and benefiting from it. Um, and it's likely that number uh, is even higher as some private companies uh, will also be applying it. So just a quick word on the process um, of updating the code. The QCA code has always been and will always be uh, produced for uh, by our members, for our members um, and the wider small and mid-cap community. The update was thorough and we consulted extensively. We pulled together an excellent working group of members to take forward the updates of the code, as James has already mentioned. And this predominantly consisted of members of our corporate governance expert group, but also some from the wider membership. And they represented a really broad spectrum of the small and mid-cap community. So comprising executive and non-executive directors, company secretaries, investors, legal professionals, remuneration consultants, and other advisors. Um, the process um, itself of uh, redrafting the code was a six-month project and a huge amount um, of time dedicated by the working group um, to the update over the course of those six months. Um, and then we were able to uh, consult uh, with a wider group of stakeholders, including some of the exchanges, regulators um, and other industry bodies, along with a wider group of corporates and advisors. And this really helped to ensure that we collected the widest possible uh, range of views and that the code arrives at an appropriate place. So this brings me on to really why we have um, updated the codes. Um, firstly, just to stress, uh, James has already touched upon it, but we recognize that maintaining and updating the code is, is a privilege. It's not something that we do lightly and nor is it something um, that we look to do regularly. Um, it's also important to stress that we don't adhere to any particular timeframe um, all the same time as timeframe as the FRC, which is coincidentally updating the UK code at the same time. But we're, of course, publishing our code ahead of theirs, making any final decisions on the code and therefore not problem. And we're not guided by any of the proposed revisions or additions in there. And just in addition to that, we're fully aware that the 2018 version of the code is very well known. It's been well received by all market participants, but the companies and investors. And just to state before scaring it, we've not sought to reinvent the wheel um, or conduct a complete overhaul of this. The overarching nature of the codes and its core tenets of flexibility and proportionality remain a key feature um, of the code and we're at the forefront of our minds during the revision. And of course, at its core, and its hearts, good governance will always be about having the right people working together and doing the right things. But nevertheless, we recognize that governance is a dynamic concept and one that evolves and changes over time. And a lot can happen in the space of five years. So recognizing that we thought it was the right time to update the codes. And as the QCA, we of course have the responsibility to help our members and the wider community ensure that they're following good practice to help them achieve better outcome, outcomes and ensure that they are attractive investment propositions for investors. So Will and Laura will provide some detail on the specific elements of the codes we have updated and revised. But overall, we've looked to improve the structure and flow of the codes, thinking about the logical steps companies should take to address governance issues, meaning that there has been a slight reordering and reshaping of some of the principles, but we have stuck to the 10-point pl plan when there remains only 10 principles in there. We've made some revisions to reflect the new and emerging responsibilities of board members and executives. 
we've addressed new key issues, areas, and themes uh, that have come to the fore in recent years and have sought to align these in a proportionate manner uh, with the expectations and interests of investors and other stakeholders. We've also included incorporated feedback from market participants uh, around the previous version of the code uh, around elements that were perhaps um, slightly unclear or in need of further clarity. Um, and along similar lines, we've in, in, in added to the application guidance. Um, the code was, of course, shortened and streamlined last time around, um, and we've tried to keep to that, but um, we have added to the application guidance in some instances um, to help guide companies on any areas of difficulty that have been uh, identified over the last uh, five years. This is not to say that the code requires heaps and heaps more information, but seeks to help companies focus on the key issues that matter. And again, just on along those lines, important to reiterate that we are we're, we're cognizant of the scope and amount of information that companies uh, reporting on continues to grow. We've borne that in mind throughout the revision. And of course, the overarching aim of this revision is helping ensure that we report, we help companies report on the right things and that they're adhering to good governance practice, not only for the benefit of their own growth, um, but also to improve market and investor confidence. And then just finally, before I stop talking and hand over to Will and Laura for the much more exciting part of the webinar, looking at the key changes, there's some important information to take note of. So we have an effective date for the new code. So we recommend that any company which claims to apply the QCA codes on or after the 1st of April, 2024, will be applying the new code and not this 2018 version of the code. This means that the, the first disclosures under the new code will be made in 2025. We've also put forward a transition period for the implementation of the new code. So this means that for the first uh, 12 months after the initial effective dates, companies will have uh, additional flexibility to adjust to the new code um, and build the necessary capacity to apply the principles. So during this period, companies can focus more on usage of explanations um, on certain areas that have been updated in the code just in order to smooth that transition. And then in terms of applying the old 2018 version of the QCA code, we recommend that companies migrate to the new code as we will shortly stop supporting the old codes. And in time, investors and other stakeholders will no longer recognize it. All of this information I've just spoken through, plus more information is set out and explained in the supporting documents to the QCA code and in the FAQs. So these are all available on our website alone. Without further ado, I will hand over to uh, Laura and Will to talk through some of the key areas of the revision. Um, Laura, over to you. Thanks, Jack. Um, good morning, everybody. I'm not sure I can promise that much excitement, but thanks for the build-up. So I've been asked to outline some key areas of change in the code. My subjects are recognition of the workforce as a key stakeholder, independence requirements board, and my influence that determination of independence, and succession and contingency planning. Kicking off with the workforce, um, pretty much an article of faith now that a company's workforce is its most important asset. Um, without their workforces, companies can't really do anything. So beyond the human cost, um, the impact or value of uh, poorly managed, badly motivated, unrewarded, disengaged teams can be significant in the short, medium and long term. Uh, it can mean the difference between an inspiring rise and the long, slow, quite sad death of an otherwise very viable business. So maintaining focus on employee satisfaction, engagement, and motivation, we think is key to delivering shareholder returns and being a good corporate citizen. There's obviously a, a big cross crossover with corporate culture and purpose here, which we'll be talking about later. 
Turning to the code, principle four requires companies to take into account wider stakeholder interests and the implications of long-term success. As has been tweaked from the 2018 version, but that's not new. We've just built in the reference to workforce. And principle four echoes the sentiment of section 172 of the Companies Act, um, which requires a range of stakeholder groups to be considered in decision-making. It's worth noting that neither the Companies Act nor the Code are seeking to use uh, the principle of shareholder primacy. So the application criteria of principle four required a company to devote particular attention to its workforce and ensure that its practices towards its employees are consistent company's values, and we are obviously assuming positive values here. It also expects an appropriate whistleblowing process to be put in place, which will enable employees to raise concerns and confidence and have follow-on processes to ensure review of any such reports and that, if necessary, appropriate actions taken. The code also recognizes the need for feedback systems from relevant stakeholder groups. And from a workforce perspective, this could be activities such as employee satisfaction surveys or employee representatives tasked with communicating with management on behalf of the workforce. There are various ways to address it and what's appropriate will be down to the particular circumstances of the company. Then moving on to my topic number two, independence. Independent representation on the board. This has been a, a key feature of the code. And we're feeding into the application of principle six now, which is similar to you all, which you need to establish and maintain the board as a well-functioning, balanced team led by the chair. So there are a couple of key updates in this section. In terms of the board composition, the code, the updated code would be recommending that at least half of the board is independent non-executive directors with a minimum of two independent NEDs, which can include the chair, assuming they were independent on appointment. So that's pretty much what the guidance of the 2018 code says, but it's been given more weight by being brought forward to the front end. We also recognize that there was some confusion around whether an independent chair could be captured in the net numbers or not. So the code now seems to make that clear. In terms of the committees, key committees of the board, the application of principle six advises that board committees be comprised of a majority of independent NEDs, especially the audit and remcons, and fully independent committees are ideal. So indicators, the next point to consider is what is independence for a non-exec? I generally think the thing about independence is a bit like an elephant. It's quite hard to describe, but you know it when you see it. But that methodology doesn't really lend itself to accountability. So under the QCA code as it stands now, independence is a matter for the board's judgment. And that is still true in the updated code, but we've included some matters which boards might want to take into account when making that judgment. I think practitioners have historically looked across to the FRC code for guidance and probably still will, but the QCA code doesn't give metrics. There's no nine years, that's it policy applied, for example. So some points of consideration that have been noted include size of any shareholding, length of tenure, and commercial relationships with the company, which may be historic or current. The code does note that boards need to be sensitive to actual and perceived impediments to independence. Perceived issues can obviously damage investor confidence like real ones. And the annual report will need to identify the independent directors as it currently does. And address circumstances where there are grounds to question the director's independence. And any concerns about perceived lack of independence can be properly addressed in those disclosures. It's worth noting that the code does advise that NEDs should rarely participate in performance-related remuneration schemes or have a significant interest in company share options scheme for well-rehearsed reasons. Um, and if that's considered beneficial for any reason, there is an expectation that shareholders will be consulted in advance. Um, this has been brought forward from the guidance notes to the application criteria in the 2023 code. Um, an annual report disclosure requirement around this exercise has also been added. Moving on to succession and contingency planning. 
So I think it's, again, understood that it's quite unhealthy for any individual to be indispensable in a business. And people's circumstances change. And they get poorly, they leave. Other things happen that mean that they are no longer uh, appropriate for the role. But for any number of reasons, they may not be around forever. And failure to consider a plan for that eventuality can leave companies very vulnerable. In order to protect themselves, businesses um, should be looking to develop succession plans and contingency plans in case of departure or extended absence of key colleagues. The code did previously cover succession planning, but has been updated to reference contingency planning for key staff absence and not just directors, and to make it clear that executives and non-executives are both relevant to the succession planning. The application criteria of Principle 8 recognise this as like a task requiring a robust process and includes provisions to address it. An nomination committee may be appropriate to assist with this work stream. The experience, skills, and capabilities required to support the next stage of the company's life should be mapped and used to inform. The expectations around succession planning are by a new disclosure requirement in the annual accounts. There will be already existing but slightly tweaked website disclosures. And diversity considerations will also be relevant to succession discussions. And these will be discussed by Will and Hit section, which is coming up right now. I hand over to Will. Thank you. Thanks, Laura. Good morning, everyone. Thanks, Jack and James, too. I just want to reiterate a couple of those points already made. That the six-month update to this code has absolutely been a collaborative effort. And I think from the outset, there's been some pretty good consensus within the working group and indeed within the feedback we received from the wider community and membership around those areas for reform. And Laura's touched on those already, or at least a few of them. I'll touch on a few more now in just the next few minutes. And I suppose one thing we really want to bring through is that the consensus that I alluded to extended to that need, the need for the code to keep pace with evolving investor expectations, as well as those of wider stakeholders. And that's why the first pillar here is around environmental and social considerations. If we roll back to 2018 and think through the, the changes in the, the regulatory context and the investor and stakeholder expectation over the subsequent five years, those around ESG have been absolutely where there's probably been the most rapid change. And there's been a real rapid rise of ESG's importance over that five years. And therefore the code is now certainly speaking to a company's governance of its environmental and social issues. There's been increasing regulation of investors too over that period with SFDR and a whole suite of other regulatory instruments coming in into force both in Europe and no doubt within the UK in the coming years. And therefore the code is also speaking to the need for companies to satisfy investor expectations and investor informational needs around environmental and social topics too. And one thing that was in front of my mind when we were updating the code was some research put out by the QTA back in summer 2023, which talked about the ESG investment opportunity that many small caps were missing out on as a result of a lack of or insufficient ESG disclosures being provided. So again, we hope the proportionate response taken through this code will play a role in closing some of that gap. So in terms of the specifics, the way we've sought to tackle the ESG piece is frankly weaving it through the code in its entirety. Laura's already talked about principles one and two in purpose and culture, which are very much a focus of the, co the code before. They remain the centerpiece through which ENS kind of builds out of. But we built on that by, we go through a few of the subsequent principles with principle three, where we talk about develops, directors must develop a good understanding of the needs and expectations of their shareholder register. That expands now to talking about companies and boards providing an appropriate quantitative and qualitative reporting of a company's ENS material matters to meet those investor needs and expectations. 
and this was probably the area, of, frankly, within the work group, we had the most discussion around, both in terms of how we framed that reporting obligation and also where it sat. It's ultimately ended up sitting within this principle three for the reason that it is ultimately satisfying, as I said, the investor demand for more information from companies and it's board's, the board's responsibility to ensure they are cognizant of that informational need from its shareholder register and satisfying that need through corporate reporting. So that is a mixture of quantitative and qualitative, and there are lots of external frameworks that companies can look to to build up reporting framework. So we, we build on that then in principle four, when we talk about the taking account of wider stakeholder interests. And again, to, to Laura's point before, and, and I think Jack's too, there is no intention through the updates of this code to trump shareholder primacy. Shareholder privacy is, is absolutely still the dominant lens through which all the code principles and application guidance is framed. Nonetheless, as we were talking about, the first among equal status for the workforce, but we've also called out matters such as climate change as being a particular area for companies to give consideration to. So the code within principle four does call out climate change specifically and does encourage boards to wrap those matters within their strategy, risk management, business model disclosures, and ultimately wider risk and governance disclosures too. That then flows through to principle five, where we talk about risk management and internal controls. And, and there, we talk specifically about boards ensuring that all potential risks are considered on a proportionate basis. And again, climate change is called out as a specific risk to be considered in, in that deliberative process. The disclosure requirements then talk about a company's governance around climate-related risks and opportunities being explained within the governance statement. We also talk about the process for identifying, assessing, and managing risks and how those processes are integrated into the overall, overall risk management process. Again, you can see some parallels to frameworks such as the task force and climate-related financial disclosures being touched upon here without being made explicit within the code's requirements. So lots of external frameworks, boards, and advisors can look to, but we're calling through the, bringing through the core principles of some of those frameworks into the QCA code in this update. And then just a couple of more points on, on the climate piece then. We've, and sustainability more broadly, as we flow through to principle seven, where we talk about governance structures and skills, clearly it's very important for boards when they're appraising the skills framework of their current NEDs to also be thinking through the evolving needs of that skills framework in the years to come as certain sustainability topics become of ever increasing importance for boards to deliberate, debate, and challenge themselves around. And so within that context, this new the, the update to this principle encourages boards to ensure they have the necessary skills today and looking forward, and that, that also gives consideration to relevant sustainability matters to the company, including climate change in this context. And then finally, we flow through to principle 10, where we talk about communication and the needs for boards to ensure that their disclosures satisfy the reporting and informational needs of investors. And again, including, but not limited to ESG. So a bit of a long-winded ramble, but the point hopefully coming through that environmental and social considerations are being woven through all of the 10 principles with reporting obligations being alluded to or specified. Um, explicitly within some of the, the disclosure requirements of those principles. One of the, the other matters of environmental and social is clearly diversity. And again, that's an area where there's been a rapid rise 
of focus on that topic over the five years since we last updated the code. So back in 2016, there was the Hampton Alexander Review, which looked at gender diversity on UK boards. And then a few years later, there was the Parker Review, which looked at ethnic diversity on UK company boards. Both of those, of many will be familiar, have flown through, flowed through to a change in the UK listing rules, with main list companies now required to comply or explain against a series of diversity targets. 40% for female, have a, a senior management team member who is also female, and an additional ethnic minority board representative. So in the QCA code, we have not sought to take a prescriptive quotas-based approach, but nonetheless, we are very cognizant of that increased expectation around diversity in, in, multitude, in a multitude of different facets being represented on smaller company boards. So in that context, there has been an update to principle six and provision G within principle six talks specifically to boards reflecting on their own diversity and then considering a non-exhaustive list of indicators to consider, which calls out socioeconomic factors, calls out gender, calls out nationality and calls out age, and then requires those companies to describe within their governance statement how they today or will in future continue to have a board that has the necessary diversity mix to ensure they are able to challenge themselves, debate, deliberate, and have the, the right diverse mix of views around the board table to ultimately making, be making the best decisions for the board and shareholders at large. So no quotas, but much more emphasis given. And then onto remuneration, which is a new principle for the QJ code. It's new principle nine. And when we set out updating the code six, seven months ago, I think the, the first thought that occurred to me, frankly, is that remuneration was most notable by its omission from past codes. But however, I, I think I can speak for most folks who were on the webinar this morning, remuneration is perennially contentious and it's a topic that I think most of us would like to talk less about. And therefore there is a slight contradiction in bringing a new principle into the code all about remuneration. That said, it is clearly hugely important in both aligning purpose, strategy, and culture, which is the, you know, the dominant focus of the first two principles of this code, and clearly incentives do drive behavior. So it is an, an enormously important topic and obviously a topic that wider investors and stakeholders care about too. So the new principle has been brought in, but it almost entirely mirror, mirrors and echoes the remuneration committee guidance that the QCA published in 2000. So there is nothing new per se in the um, code and principle that's being encouraged now of company boards. The principle itself encourages the course for pay structures that are simple, easy to understand, and foster alignment primarily through shareholding. And in terms of shareholder accountability, we call for an annual remuneration report, which is subject to an, um, an annual advisory vote. Remuneration policies that are subject to an, at least an advisory vote on a triennial basis. And for share schemes to be put to shareholder votes. Again, none of that is new in terms of what's being asked of from the QCA, but is now formalized in a principle within the code itself. And then if we flow through to principle 10 around communication, again, nothing new, but much more emphasis given to the need for boards to disclose all votes in a clear and transparent manner, something the QCA has been calling for a long period of time and around which there has been much improvement. There are a large number of QCA code adopters and aim listed companies who continue to make it very difficult to track down 
shareholder votes and, and annual meeting records. And we also call for an explanation from boards where a significant level of shareholder dissent has been expressed on a particular shareholder res a management resolution at a company AGM. Again, nothing new, but more emphasis given to. And then finally, in terms of risk management, clearly that's been the focus of a lot of the FRC's intended update to its code this year. And many of you would have seen that the news coverage around a lot of that being rolled back. I can reassure you that the risk management principle of the QCA code is very much just a an iterative update. There is no significant change per se. I've talked in part about climate change being brought into that, that, that now current principle five. So there is reference to some of those more macro risks for boards to consider. And there is now a, an additional disclosure requirement around risk governance and processes and those supporting boards assessments of future prospects and resilience co considerations. Obviously resilience and resilience statements have been very much the focus of some of the FRC and department of businesses work over the past few years. So that's the context for, for that update. As I said, again, nothing hugely significant one, one hopes in terms of scaring the horses, but a, a tweak in terms of the emphasis being given to some of those elements within that updated print. So I'll pause then. Hopefully we can have a, a Q and A and discussion around some of those elements shortly. Fantastic. Thank you, Will. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Jack. That was, I think that was a long way short of a, of a long-winded ramble. Will, there, there needs to be at least, at least an hour long. Look, please do give us some questions. I know we have more than 200 people on the, uh, on the webinar, so I hope there's a, there's a conversation to be had. I would just say before then, my very brief sales plug, QCA members can download their copy of the code document today. We're also providing you with a set of supporting documents to help with its adoption. We have code workshops planned, which are free for members. And we're also providing you with a code badge, which we hope is a mark that you've acquired a verified version. For non-members, if you become a QCA member, all of these inclusive items are yours. You could also influence our campaigns of policy work. Um, you can get involved in very valuable projects and submissions that we're doing, just like this one. Uh, and there's also our whole um, events program to think about, just to give you an idea of that before Christmas. Um, for companies, we have two more get togethers with leading fund managers to understand how they tick. And we also have a breakfast Q and A in the pipeline with a government minister, um, which is probably quite a useful thing to have post autumn statement. This slide we wanted to, to put up in common with the conversations and the detail that Will and Laura and Jack have set out, we'd be very eager to reach out to many key stakeholders during this, this process. So it's pleasing that the new code has been welcomed by the market operators, that's Aquis and Elseg, as well as the Financial Reporting Council and the Investment Association. What do I have now? I think I have that one again. And then I think we can move on to Q&A. So Paul, if we can, we can have the equivalent of the lights up, that would be great. Thank you. So please do send us a, a question on the right column. And I think what I would ask, first of all, Laura, the, you talked about this when you made the point about workforce. There is a degree of a balancing act here, isn't there? And I suppose we're hoping the code helps companies find their way through that. It's about serving the investors, but then all of these other stakeholders, and that must have been on your mind as, as the conversations happen. Yeah, absolutely. Everything is a balancing act. So we're making compromises somewhere, but I think as a, as I said, the necessity to the necessity of a, of a, of an engaged, motivated 
rewarded workforce to delivering shareholder value really can't be underestimated. You literally can't do anything without it. And the difference between a workforce that's aligned to your culture, your values, your purpose is really delivering compared to an office of quiet acquitting is very significant. It always feels like the code is reflecting specifically what we're seeing uh, on the ground mm. where people are recognizing, recognizing the importance of, of the workforce in the success of the business. I agree. The stages we've had with fund managers recently, actually that churn rate, the, um, the retention of uh, workers is something that investors have, have really seen as an indicator to, do I want to back this company? Are they, are they looking yeah, no. at their people? Um, I think it's very front of mind at the moment in, in the uh, sort of labor, the tightened labor market and different approaches to work these days post pandemic. Yeah. It, it's a slightly different world to the, the one that I started yeah. to say. Well, we, we emphasize this all the way through, and I suppose it's worth um, pointing out at, at the end, there is, there are changes in these 10 principles. They are still 10 principles. They're still very growth focused, but, but the flexibility is still there, isn't it? We've got to make that point. Absolutely. So I guess come a quick thought when we embarked on update, updating this code six, seven months ago, I think my first thought when looking at the 2018 code was frankly, how well it stands the test of time. It, it didn't feel like a huge need for huge overhaul and hopefully most folks when they get a chance to look at the updated code later today will reach the, the view that we haven't created a huge overhaul and a huge raft of additional burdens on companies. And it's hope it is absolutely about bringing more emphasis through within the, the updated code to certain areas where either there's a need for, for more focus or where wider expectations have absolutely grown in the, in the five years since we last updated. But even in those areas, we've sought to resist the inclination to go down the route of prescribing particular approaches to be taken. And I think the, my, my point around diversity hopefully talked to that, where there's clearly a large body of expectation that, that boards have a certain proportion of female representatives around the board table and pre ethnic diversity too becoming, getting increasing focus. We recognize that smaller company boards are clearly smaller. There's a smaller recruitment pool and let kind of shifting to a 40, 50% gender balance is clearly a much more difficult ask to make. And frankly, there was a whole gamut of different diversity characteristics for companies to think through that may actually be more material and important for them to address as a priority issue. So we've given more emphasis, called out that non-exhaustive list, and ultimately put the burden on companies and boards to explain why their diversity mix is appropriate for them at their particular point in time, and how they continue to think about that issue as they project forward in the coming years as their strategy continues to evolve too. And I think you might have covered one of the questions that's come in. So what, why did we not choose to fo follow the HCA approach around diversity targets, particularly given that there has historically been poor reporting concerning diversity among some listed companies? Yeah, I, I think hopefully it's alluded to, I think we, we absolutely recognize that this code applies to some very large listed companies, frankly, billion plus company, market cap companies, but also some very small companies too. And therefore the proportionate response is to call out the issue, frame the issue appropriately, call out the issues for companies to, to wrestle with around that topic, but not to set an explicit guardrail or an explicit requirement that then is a one size fits all for the entirety of the market. This is a fair point from someone who has done their sums, Tracy. If there is a new remuneration principle, but still 10 overall, which one has gone? Sorry, just trying to remember. Uh, sorry, I can take that one. So there's, as I mentioned in, when I was speaking earlier, there's a slight reordering, slight reshaping of some of the principles. We, we haven't got rid of any of them, but we have folded print, formal principle 
nine and six together to make a new principle that really test my knowledge of the numbers of principle seven now. And so that they, they've been combined with, I believe they work well together within the overall framework. Yeah. Great. Thank you, Jack. And Jack, it's worth mentioning while you're, you're involved because you will have been in every conversation. And as Will said, when you opened up and thought about, oh, we need to do something. No, none of this was an open and shut case. We didn't come into this thinking this, we have to reinvent the wheel, but nor did, nor was anything assumed. I think that's fair to say. And that's where the, that's where the time was so valuable. If we had tried to get this out before summer, it wouldn't be half the document it is today. Yes, absolutely. And as well as already touched on, there was a very much a, when we got first got the working group together, there was a collective feeling that the, the code is still in a good place, but, and, and as I've said, five years is a, is a reasonable long time and a lot happens in those, over the course yeah. of, of those five years, new areas, new themes, new issues come to the fore. Yeah. Like we mentioned around environmental and social issues. So it's important for us to incorporate those in there as well. I thought I should just echo the point on, on, on the FRC and Will and Jack, you both mentioned it, that we know the FRC has recently had a rethink. And as anyone who read our submission on, on the, the UK code changes would know, we welcome the, the rethink that they've had in ditching a lot of those proposed reforms. We like the fact that Richard Moriarty now is talking about uh, being proportionate. That's one of my favorite words, but also encourage, encouraging competitiveness in terms of how it affected our, well, we don't think it did because we were, we front ran their review. And as you, as we saw from the, from the timeline that you put up, it's quite a long time since the QCA offered guidance on the FRC code. There's been a sense of a coupling, I think, uh, over the years, if that's a fair way of characterizing it, Will and Laura, we're in tandem, but we are to a degree doing our own thing. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And there is, I suppose there's always been a sort of like the big brother, little brother around it, a little bit like the, the main market premium list and A, but I do think that the needs and capabilities and resources of the companies on AIM are, are at least for the most part, markedly different to those on the premium list. And that simply has to be recognized in the government's arrangement that we seek to expect from them and, I, and the flexibility that they need to have. And so I think a couple in the two case is definitely the right way forward. And I think it, it saved confusion on the investor, investor mind as well. Yeah. So question, what does the panel consider to be a significant level of shareholder dissent? Again, shareholder resolution, 20% question mark. Yeah, so the, the case falls out 20% as an example, but it doesn't specify that as being the limit for companies to consider as being significant in, in of itself. Clearly, 20% is taken from the, the FRC code. And as we just talked about, we are uncoupling. We are not reliant upon the guidance that comes from that. And we are certainly very aware that for smaller companies, clearly there was a much more concentrated shareholder register. Yeah. And so the ultimate onus really is on boards to understand the views of their shareholders and in so doing, they would very quickly come to a conclusion as to whether there is significant dissent between their view and the shareholder view around any particular topic. Where there is, we want to see companies be a little bit more proactive than they've been in the past in explaining where and why there is that difference of view and where they frankly agree to disagree, blame so, and or where they're taking on board the, the investor sentiment and responding again to set up that timeline and course of action and, and when they expect to take that action over the within a statement to the wider market. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks, Will. And from Maria, who's pointing out the focus on environmental and social going through principle three, she says, presumably this means that disclosure is expected from the investor materiality perspective, first and foremost, as opposed to double materiality, or is this different for climate change? Yes, it is absolutely back to the first point we've made a few times, it's absolutely still a shareholder primacy view and therefore it's share, shareholder materiality that is 
informing that materiality assessment. I, I don't think we want to get into today the, the differences between single materiality and double materiality and how big a difference there is or is not between those two frameworks. But I think the UK and the ISSB and the kind of big international convergences around sustainability frameworks are very much centering around that single materiality framework as being the dominant lens. And that's what we're echoing here. The, the two points, just to expand on that, one would be, as I've alluded to, that kind of workforce be, being given almost first among equal status within the code. That is because we think on the whole, it is material to almost all companies, if not all companies, and therefore warrants a place in of itself being called out within the code. And climate change, that's been called out specifically because A, it is clear the macro issue that I think we all recognize is affecting the economy at large, and therefore companies need to think through how those changes that are coming about as a result of climate change impact their own risks and opportunities going forward. But also because, again, as I alluded to in my comments, the expectations on investors have changed so significantly over the past few years, and their demands of companies are, growing, are changing as a result. And therefore, investors are increasingly demanding more climate information. We just lost you there momentarily. I think you, you came to the end of that answer very well before, before the outage. Jack, just some questions on, on adoption. I, I wonder what, and I haven't really thought about this point from Tracy. Are companies permitted to adopt the new code early if clearly disclosed? They'd have to be quick, I think, wouldn't they? Uh, yes, and that's, that's why we haven't, we decided for the April 2024 date, because we believe that's an appropriate time for companies to be able to adjust to the new principles and the new content with, within, the toad, within the code, sorry. And then in addition to also the transition period just to even that smoothing, it, it remains completely up to the company themselves if they decide to head with that. Yeah. And what we hope that people do as they adopt the, the 2023 code, that the, you know, as we announced and talked about today, the code badge, we hope that's an indicator of, of companies that have, have got a baseline understanding and have, t have taken a copy of the code from us. And we hope that becomes, becomes a useful mark. Now for another question about, I think I know the answer to this, but I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to ask you to answer it, Jack. Does the QCA measure or poll members comply or explain rates? And I think the answer is, and you, I'll, I'll let you correct me, but I think the answer is we don't because oh. comply or explain is not, is not an expression that we deal with particularly related to our code, is it? Uh, no, exactly. So we, we, we try and sort of avoid that, uh, phrase, uh, where possible in the code and, and. We have done studies in, in the past to, that, that have looked at application of the code and its principles. And there has been, since the 2018 version of the code, there's been a significant improvement in the percentage of companies that are applying the principles in the full. It's not something we did that we did in the last year, but it is something we have looked at in the past and might be something we look at again in the future. Yeah, certainly. I think what I would say is. Um, the, the piece of work we did in, we did in, in summer really opened our eyes and we haven't looked at that for a little while. How are people using our code and how many people are using our code? And we, we knew we had a great share, um, on AIM. We really weren't as clear, uh, as we might've been about how used it was on Aquis and then also on the main book on the standard list. So I think we want to, we want to see where it's been used, see where else it could be used and to, to do our best to track the usage understanding without, as I said at the top, we're, we're definitely not getting into taking a view uh, on, on how people adopt it. We're not marking anyone's homework. That is not our job. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and just, just to add to that, James, as well, we've had plenty of conversations in the last, over the course of the last five years with the, with the old code, whether 
that be regulators, exchanges, market participants, investors. We know the areas that are applied with very well, and we know the areas that might not necessarily be applied as, as well. Yeah. So that's what's right. been the focus of the update this year. So Laura, um, I think question for you from Hugh, if Ned independence, this is the elephant question. If Ned independence remains a matter for the board, has anything changed for advisors in advising boards with strongly held views? No, I suppose not actually. It didn't start to the board. It's not the advisors putting their names to the annual report and the, and the disclosures, frankly. Your job is to advise, not decide. If the board come down on the decision of independence, as long as they can justify it and you, I think what you need to do is go through, go through the sort of criteria that you need to look at and sort of at, at one advisory when we're looking at this for, for clients, we'll, we'll put together a checklist and, and try and take into consideration all of the possible impacts on independence as well as the sort of overall, um, overall holistic view and do that exercise and be able to justify why you have arrived at the decision that you've arrived at. And I think as advisors, you can only advise, but it is the board to decide and then justify it. And a couple of questions about what we're providing people with in terms of the new code. So the, I'll reiterate it again. So for members, they can get access to a, a copy of the 2023 code document today. They get the supporting documents, which really spells out the changes from 2018 to 2023, invitations to workshops, and also the code badge to just denote that they've got a verified version of the code. And for non-members, it's the code document and the badge. So currently those supporting documents are, are with members. We, we might consider how we distribute those otherwise, but we really want to make sure that, that, that those, those support documents are are available for members. And I think what's the, what other question, Jack, this is probably foreshadowing your, your work program for 2024. Are there any plans to revise the separate remuneration guidelines in due course? Yes, uh, uh, absolutely. No, no set date at the moment, um, to, uh, revise it, revise any of our guides by a certain deadline, but, um, we will take a look, um, at all of them, um, and resolve, revise them if, and, uh, when appropriate. Um, so that could be forthcoming. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I would say, I think, look, there's, there's other questions coming in about, about, you know, what's available and when, and, and for example, can we display the new QCA shield now? I think you could, but it is very linked to the, to the 2023 code document. So it would, I think if you're displaying that now, that would suggest that you've, you've obtained that verified version and, and that in some way you're following 23 over 2018. Uh, there are other FAQs on the, on the code on our new website. So please take a look at that today. And I would say the other point, Jack, is where do people stand with the 2018 code now? And we, we do expect within time that um, the focus shifts. Do you want to just give a bit of overview on that? Yeah, ex yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And as, as we've already stressed in, in time, investors and other stakeholders will cease to, to recognize that as companies begin to adopt the new code. And once the transition period has passed, we will certainly stop supporting it at, at some point in time as well. Which is pretty much what happened five years ago. There was a kind of a pretty seamless shift, I'm told, from 2013 to, to 2018. Uh, yeah. And I think it's important that the other point you made earlier on, we don't do revisions likely. We don't take so much of, of Laura and Will and everyone else's time. We can't imagine unless there is something really significant that we're going to go back into this document for, for another five-year spell. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Something cataclysmic might come up in the next few years, in which case that sort of forces our hand and we'll have to take a look at, look at 
look at yes. it again, but yeah. um, that is unlikely, I think. And I think five years is probably a good, that's not to say we will definitely do a review revision in five years, but I think it's a, it would be a good time to consider. That was a great episode. Thanks to our guests and to our sponsor, Mazar, the audit, tax and advisory firm helping listed businesses grow with purpose. If you want to listen to more episodes of Growth Capital from the QCA, you can subscribe on Spotify or Apple. Please follow us on LinkedIn or on Twitter at Quoted Companies. And if you have questions, comments or future topics that we should cover, please get in touch.